So, we're going to be looking at a very familiar part of the story. Uh, We're part nine of our Story of God series. And as we've set out when we first started this time, as, as, as our desire on, especially as we gather on a Sunday, our heart is always that we're communicating the gospel, uh, the gospel, the good news of God and what He's done. And often that can be reduced to um, this passage that we're looking at like today, but we wanted to see that, that the story of God is a larger story starting all the way from Genesis, going all the way through Revelations. And that it culminates really with Jesus coming and dying and rising again. And so we really have been, the story of God is, in a larger extent, the gospel. And today we get to really look at the spot that many of us, um, that it's the culmination, it's the climax, it's the peak of the story of God. And so as we're wanting to communicate the gospel, the next couple of weeks we're going to, I'm going to be talking about just kind of how, what does it look like for us, therefore, to connect the gospel into everyday life. And so we'll kind of close out our God story. We'll still be a 10-part, and then we'll kind of get into that. And then, of course, we have the Easter season um, coming up next. So I need to do a little bit of review just to kind of set the stage. So for those that weren't here last week, what we have, what happened, the culture, the setting of what Jesus came into was kind of, um, it was kind of unique, right? So there was 400 years where it seemed that God wasn't communicating. We have no scripture of that. During the time, the Israelites and the religious leaders basically determined that the reason we went into captivity, the reason that we were punished essentially and judged and our nation was destroyed is because we disobeyed God. So it led to the question, well, how do we obey God? What do we need to do for this not to happen again. And so these religious leaders started going, well, we need to understand if it says, you know, keep the Sabbath holy, what does that mean? It says don't do any work on the Sabbath, what does that mean? Honor your father and mother, what does that mean? And so you started having these laws and explanations that created more laws formed, and so it created this really hyper-religious culture. And because the religious leaders were the ones that were determining what does it look like for this nation to obey God so that we never again are enslaved and we can maybe one day, if we do this well enough, they believed that the Messiah would come. And so these religious leaders became the political leaders. And they formed, uh, there was two main parties, the the, um, Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they formed a ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And they were the political and the religious leaders of the culture trying to get everyone to obey just right so that the Messiah would come. But as their religion and the Jewish law got kind of morphed into something different, their idea of the Messiah also got morphed into something different. He was no longer the Savior that would come and make all things right, but rather this political military leader that would come on the scene, conquer Rome, free them from the oppression, and rule as the king of God's kingdom. It was very much this, get us out of the situation. So they had expectations. They had ideas of what this was supposed to look like. And they were disappointed. Because Jesus comes on the scene, 
and he's nothing like they expected. He was God come down, and yet he was announced by shepherds. He was born to a poor family, and it was nothing like their expectations. And so as Jesus does his ministry, he continues to disappoint Rather than talking about this kingdom that he's going to establish that's going to be this mighty conquering nation, he does everything backwards. He starts talking about how the first shall be last. And he gives value to the marginalized and the poor. He surrounds himself with these leaders of this new kingdom and they're fishermen and they're uh, people that have, they're like women. He gave women place at the table. Like he's doing this, this whole upside down kingdom. And the religious leaders are like, what? You're not, you can't be the Messiah. And every opportunity he had to take control of the kingdom and, and to go, hey, I am your Messiah and I'm going to rule every opportunity he had, Jesus didn't take it. He didn't take it. All he did was like, nope. Every opportunity he had a chance to say, I'm the guy you're looking for, which he was. He didn't. And so their frustration grows their frustration grows. And then we come to, essentially, the triumphal entry is what it's called, the king comes. And so a lot of this, I love how Luke describes this series of events in a way that I I find very beautiful, right? Because even in this, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they're screaming, Hosanna! Hosanna. They are saying, the Messiah has come. They're laying down their, their, their jackets and they're throwing down palm leaves. And, and there's a, Mark also talks about it, but Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This proclamation was connecting to Psalms chapter 118, verses 25 and 26, which is what the Israelites had come to believe the Messiah would communicate. And that is, save us, we pray, which is another way of saying Hosanna. We pray that give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people shouting that out was their proclamation that the Messiah had come. And so everybody's waiting with pins and needles. What is going to happen? Jesus walks in and clears the temple. He doesn't go after Rome. He goes into the temple in Luke chapter 19, verse 45, and he says, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could find nothing against him. He goes after the religious leaders, not Romans. The Messiah has come to free us. He goes after the religious leaders. Then he starts getting challenging the Pharisees. They go, hey, should we pay taxes? He's like, yeah, go for it. They're like, what? And then the Sadducees, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, are like, what about in the, who's married in the afterlife? Like, what does heaven look like? He's like, you don't understand. There is an afterlife. You're going to live forever. He's challenging their idea of resurrection. He is going after the religious leaders in his final, essentially, week on the planet. It is a situation where he then challenges their idea. He tells a parable. He goes, hey, um, there's this 
this guy goes away and he has this field and he leaves it to stewards and they kill all the people and all his messengers and then he finally sends his son and he kills them. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were like, are you talking about us? And he's like, yeah. Right? So now you're going to kill me. Like, he is letting it all out like this is the problem. He is nothing like they expected. And so they determine they're going to kill him. And so they convince one of his followers to betray him. And so Jesus, you know, knowing this is coming, spends his last meal with his disciples, the Passover. And I really love this night. It's a beautiful picture of of Jesus just loving his followers, even though they're train wrecks, right? Like, there's so much going on in this meal, like, like, they're, they get into a fight about who's the greatest, right? Like, Jesus like, goes and washes their feet to show them that that's, that's not what he's about. And then they're like, hey, I heard somebody's going to betray you. And they're like, go ask him who's going to betray, you know? Like, and John's like, hey, who is it? And Jesus tells him. And like, it's just, it's like, it is this beautiful night of just pure. And then Peter's like, if everyone else, did, I will never. And he's like, actually, like, before the rooster crows three times, you're going down. Like, it's this crazy night, and he is loving them, and they go off to this garden, and he's like, pray with me, and they're like, cool, we're going to do that, and then they fall asleep, and then he's like, like, let's try again, and they like fall asleep again, and then he's like, well, like one more time, and they're like, we can't stay awake, and then he gets betrayed by his friend, right? And he gets taken to this kind of like... <clears throat> trial at the high priest's house and it's a total setup and there's false witnesses but they can't even agree and so then he gets shipped to the Sanhedrin and he has this bigger um, trial and they can't make it work and so they go to Pilate who is the governor of this province that is controlled by Rome he's a Roman governor and he finds out that he's from this district so he sends him to Herod who is this kind of Jewish fake king that was ruling and Jesus doesn't perform for him like he wants, and so they send him back to Pilate. So there's this, everybody's trying to like make this work, and finally Pilate's like, listen, this isn't, you guys got nothing on this guy. And they're like, well, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar. Pilate's like, well, let, how can I not convict a guilty man? Let me scourge him. And he's scourging. It's pretty brutal. Forty lashes was considered the death penalty, so he gave him 39. And it's this moment of, of ripping the meat and flesh out of your back through a cat of nine tails. And it's, it's excruciating, and, and it's so excruciating that a lot of people die from it, from the blood loss alone. And Jesus didn't, but he was tore up. And I think and in doing that, they also ripped out his beard, which is no fun. And so I think Pilate's goal as he brought him was like, hey, look how, man, we messed this guy up. Like, is this enough for you? And the Jewish people said, no, crucify him. You see, the Jews had lost their right for capital punishment. So they had to get Rome to, con- to content, consent to letting Jesus be killed. So that's why Jesus was killed Roman style, not Jewish style. Jewish style would have been stoning. Crucifixion was Roman. And so Pilate tries one last thing. He says, well, what if, what if this is your king? You just, a week ago, you guys were like screaming, you know, Hosanna. Like, what if... It's the Passover, so I can let one guy go. And, and so 
do you want me to let him go? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees had got the people in such a flurry that they said, no, give us Barabbas. The irony of the whole thing is Barabbas was literally guilty of the very thing they're accusing Jesus of. He is guilty of insurrection and murder, that he was trying to supplant and take out Roman authority. He was, in so many ways, what they hoped Jesus would do. He was an insurrectionist. He was probably a zealot. He was trying to kill Romans and so that Jewish people could lead. He was doing everything that they wanted Jesus to do, and Jesus didn't do. And of course, Barabbas failed. And so they asked, in the most ironic way, the guilty to be set free instead of the innocent. But it is a picture of what Jesus came to do. So Jesus comes, and he's brought, and they say, crucify him, and they put the cross on his back, and they lead him out of the city. They lead him up, uh, just right outside the wall, and they put him on the wood, nailed his hands, his feet, and then they crunch it down in this hole, and it kind of jars everybody. Often it would dislocate your shoulders at that time, sometimes. So excruciating pain. And they crucify him with two thieves. Both guilty men. One on the right and one on the left. And upon his head they put king of the Jews, which I think is... They're like, no, don't put that. He said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, I put what I put. He was raised up as king and he was proclaimed as king by a Roman, <laughs> not even by the people he came to be their king. And as he's there dying, these thieves are like jabbing at him. But one of the thieves realizes that there's something different about this guy. See, both of these men were guilty. Both of these men were dying. Both of these men were paying the penalty of their sin, essentially. And at one point, one of the thieves finally says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Kingdom. The king in the kingdom. The, the, a theme it comes back again. He knew Jesus was the Messiah. He said, remember me. And I love Jesus' response. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Not later, but today. The man did Nothing. He didn't have time to get baptized. He did nothing. And there he was, the first in the kingdom. Isn't that crazy? The guilty thief was the first in the kingdom, essentially, right? Which is another beautiful picture of what Jesus was doing. It is upside down, it is backwards, it makes no sense. It was this beautiful picture of what Jesus came to do. And so as he's already bleeding out from his scourging and he's struggling for each breath, the worst thing happens. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is crazy because for the first moment ever in the existence of everything, Jesus is separated from the Father. 
The triune God existing in a beautiful, loving relationship for all of eternity, caring and loving and, pers- and pers- caring for each other and, and preferring others. This moment, the, the Trinity was broken if it was just for a moment. He was separated from the Father. Why? Because the sin, the evil was placed on Him. He was separated, though, so that we would not have to be separated. It was at this moment that God judged sin. It was at this moment and only this moment that God punished sin. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake, God made Jesus sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus sin, like he embodied and bore all of the sin, and because God is holy, and because God is perfect, and he has to judge sin, he did. But because sin causes separation from God, Jesus was separated from God. So that we who are full of struggle and sin and brokenness might become, might be the righteousness of God. Like God's righteousness now is what God sees because of Jesus. And as this is happening, that is the most excruciating thing We see Jesus with one last breath, takes it in and says, it is finished. Right? It is finished. And that word, that that, that is to tell us that I was, but that phrase is so loaded. Because what it is saying is that the requirements necessary for me to become acceptable to God, to be acceptable to the Father, has been finished and the consequence of my sin the punishment necessary for god to be a just and holy god has been fulfilled on the cross with jesus it is finished sin has been paid for righteousness has been fulfilled it is finished paid in full there's nothing more necessary for us to be with And then Jesus dies. The word paid in full really, uh, that in Scripture it's a really complex word, it's called propitiation. It means satisfied wrath. God's wrath was satisfied. God is satisfied with what Jesus has accomplished for us. Satiated. He, he doesn't need anything more from us. Think about that. God doesn't need anything from us. He wants our heart, but He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't, he doesn't have to have anything from us. He is satisfied with Jesus. And when we take that when we 
accept that, when we trust that, when we believe that, God's inviting us into this relationship. And he's, he's satisfied essentially with us, right? He is pleased with Jesus, and when we accept what Jesus has done, he's pleased. And so, they're like, hey, we, gotta, we have a uh, feast coming up, so we better end this crucifixion a little early. Usually crucifixion took anywhere from a couple days to a week. So they're like, let's, let's, let's kick this into gear. So they started breaking the legs of all the prisoners so that they would die. Because crucifixion, you know, you're suffocating. You don't die from blood loss. You die from suffocation. But they get to Jesus, and he was already dead because of all the trauma he endured beforehand. Most likely, he bled to death. Uh, mostly. And so just to make sure, they stab a spear into his heart, and blood and water come out, shows that he had been dead for a little bit. Jesus is dead. Dead, dead. And so they take him from the cross, and they put him in the tomb of this man who was a Pharisee who came to be a disciple of Jesus. And he had this new tomb. It was for him. It was in a sweet spot, and he gave it to Jesus to be used. And so they seal it because it's a feast, and they figure, let's, let's put him in there, and then we'll come back in a few days, and we'll do the, the full burial, the full embalming, and we'll make it this really beautiful thing. And so they, they sealed it, uh, the Romans did, because they didn't want anybody to steal the body and say that he rose from the dead or anything. Um, boy, were they in for a surprise. Early on the third day, the women come to the tomb with the embalming ingredients, and the stones rolled away, and this tomb is empty. And they're all like, whoa, what's going on? But one lady sticks around. Her name's Mary. And she's looking for him. And she sees somebody she thinks is the gardener, and she's like, tell me where the body, like, please help me, right? And, and Jesus just says, Mary. Like, when you know somebody, and just the way they say your name is familiar. He just says, Mary, obviously Jesus looked different. But he says, Mary. Which I find awesome is that Jesus chose to reveal himself through relationship. He didn't make it all bright and like lightning coming out, like I'm risen from the dead. He's right. He's like, Mary. Relational. And he says to Mary, Go tell my brothers, go tell everyone that I'm risen. And I'll catch up with them later in Jerusalem or in Galilee. And so Mary goes. And she tells everyone, the first herald was a woman. Which these days isn't significant. That's like, great, good job. But back then, her eyewitness account wouldn't even have held up in a court of law. That's why one of the fascinating things about the Gospels, they all say the women were the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection if this was written by anybody to like convince anyone, they wouldn't have included that information because it would have been like, no, you have to have men be the witnesses because that's the only thing that matters. So the first person in the kingdom was a thief. The first herald was this woman. It is a backwards kingdom. And we will look at next week kind of the resurrection, the Great Commission, and, and what that looks like for us. But... The thing that I want to throw out is that Jesus, and I, I talked a little about this last week, and I've talked about it a lot, but it is always good by way of reminder, is that Jesus is the culmination of the story. He's still alive today. He is the descendant of Eve that was promised, that would, 
the descendant, the seed of the woman will crush the snake. Jesus crushed the snake of sin and death. He crushed it. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through his seed, the whole world will be blessed. We are being blessed because of what Jesus has done. But also the covenant that he gave Abraham, he said, if, if I don't fulfill this covenant, let me be torn apart, let me be killed, let me be, and God is the only one that crossed through that covenant. Jesus was cut off. Jesus was broken. Jesus took the consequence of the covenant upon himself. He is the fulfillment of that. He was separated and broken so that we wouldn't have to be. He was the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was enjoying the Passover with his disciples, which I think is beautiful too. And all in the home and all in the house is made right and protected because of the lamb's sacrifice. Jesus was nothing of what they were looking for, but he was everything they needed and more than they knew they wanted. And I don't think that's changed for us. We too have a lot of times expectations for how we see God should work and how Jesus should be functioning. And often Jesus is more than that. So as we close, I kind of ask the question of, so what do we do? What do we do? And I think the key is, is that often for those of us that have been following Jesus for any amount of time, this familiarity can bleed, can breed um, complacency, right? Like we hear this all the time. Jesus said, I don't cross my sins. But, but God's heart and his desire is for us to respond to this. Responding often is worship, right? If, if worship isn't just singing, it's this idea of the gaze of our heart transferring from something we're finding beautiful and glorious onto God. It's this idea of trust and belief, right? We're responding going, I'm believing this thing to be true. I'm believing this thing will provide satisfaction. I'm providing, thinking these things will really satisfy my soul. And it's, it's transferring this as we're seeing God in a different way and going, I, I believe this about you, God. I trust you. And it's rest. If, there, if rest isn't an aspect in regards to, I'm talking like deep soul rest isn't an aspect of life, often it's because our trust and our gaze are misplaced. So we respond. And then we, re, and at times we need to remember, right? We need to be reminded of these things. And that's God's heart. And we remind each other, where's your trust? Where's the gaze of your heart? And so then we repeat. And that really is the life of the Christian. It's this idea of responding to the goodness of glory of God, remembering it, reminding each other of it, and repeating that. And what happens from that is, is fruit and rest and goodness and all of the things that we're trying to muster up on our own, but so often comes up short because of the main thing here. So with that,